Good morning again and welcome, welcome. Um, it's a joy always to be with the family of God. We have been united to Christ in faith, by faith, and also to one another. And so I want to yes and amen what Ben said earlier before the pastoral prayer that we come here not simply to receive but to enjoy the fellowship of Christ and one another. There's something particular about joining together in corporate worship. And while we are with Christ always, this is unique and it's a means of grace from God to us. And so the fact that you all are here is uh, an encouragement and I would pray that we continue to press on all the days of our lives. We're going to continue, of course, in our Exodus series and I'm, um, I'm particularly excited about the content of this chapter. I guess excited is not even the, a fair word, but I think you'll know what I mean. This particular chapter is so rich in detail that it's easy to gloss over much of what's happening. And if you paid attention to the previous sermons, um, Ben made mention that the book of Exodus is a continuation of the story of God and his people. This isn't a separate occurrence. And so as we look at this chapter, we have to keep in mind what God has already done and we have to form expectations of what he's going to do. All this is within the text and in particular in chapter two, which is where we'll be. And so um, as a little catch up, we've seen so far from chapter one that Israel had gone down into Egypt. You should know the story well. Joseph was there before them through the providential hand of God. And Joseph was led there in captivity but ended up being a, uh, a righteous ruler in the land, second to Pharaoh, and was the savior of his people uh, during a famine. And so they're in Egypt, but then a new ruler comes across and does not know Joseph. And so Israel's in captivity for 400 years. This was told to Abraham by God that this would happen. And then last week we saw specifically how the king of Egypt, that is Pharaoh, gave an edict to slaughter newborn males, and yet Hebrew midwives resisted. And they feared God rather than fearing man. And so we're picking up right from there. And before I read... I'll show you, uh, I want to give you some themes that we're going to see. As I mentioned earlier, the details matter. And I've titled this sermon, In the Hands of Providence. It was common for the Puritans to write of God with his name as providence because he's the very source of it. It's from him. And so without God, there is no providence. And so... When I say in the hands of providence, I really mean in the hands of, of Christ. But that word is important. And I think it defines the entire chapter. It defines the entire chapter. And so that's the main theme. But we're also going to see themes that point back to Genesis, which 
I'll elaborate upon and themes that point forward to Christ. And, it's, and, and that's, what this, that's what this is about. As we submit ourselves to Christ in his word, we want to be shaped by the word and we want to be informed by it, but not just intellectually. We want to worship. We want to commune with Christ. This is his word. And if we're not seeing him on every page, then we're doing it wrong. And so my, my goal today is for us to have a bigger picture, a bigger view of the God of the universe who has revealed himself in Christ his son. And if we can do that, if we can see him with greater clarity with, and, and worship him in, in greater depth because we see him more clearly, then I would say we've, we've done well today. And so my main points that we'll work through if you're keeping track, and I'll, I'll let you know when we're in each of them. My three main points are providence, purpose, and peace, with the main point being, of course, providence. So if you would, please stand with me at the reading of the word. Then we'll pray and begin. The word of God speaks thus. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses. Because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their, their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, 
He said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man and he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Let's pray. God of heaven and earth, we rejoice at the reading of your word. I pray that even now you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would behold you and your glory in Christ Jesus, that we would offer you true worship today in spirit and in truth. You're worthy of nothing less, and so please would you tune our hearts to give it. I pray that you would be pleased with us today, that our worship would be sacrificial because it's from within. We know that you don't desire the sacrifice of beasts or animals anymore, but you desire a humble and a contrite heart. And so may we come today before you in fear and trembling before your word, but also in the joy of knowing that everything is ours in Christ and he is our righteousness. I pray all that would be revealed today and that we would marvel at your grace towards us. I pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. All right, our first point, providence. And again, this is really the overarching theme of the entire chapter, but I felt it was necessary to give you some guardrails. And I hope you appreciate my alliteration of providence, purpose, and peace. Okay, I want us to remember this. <coughs> Providence, in sub brackets, I say, hidden by faith. The author of Hebrews tells us that every, at every stage of the way, the people of God acted by faith. It was by faith that Moses was hidden by his parents. And so we see that they bore a son. Yep, Moses was the youngest child of his parents. We see later in Exodus that Aaron is three years older than Moses, and the sister in the narrative is Miriam, of course. Miriam is a good deal older because she's old enough to follow Moses down the river and speak with Pharaoh's daughter. And so we have to be reminded of everything that's happening. It said that the, the, we know that the midwives, at least several of them, refused to follow Pharaoh's edict. And so then Pharaoh, this is in chapter 1, it says this in verse 21. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This was happening. Stephen, in the book of Acts, when he addresses the people, says that Pharaoh was forcing the fathers of Israel to expose their sons and that their sons were dying. So th this was happening. Babies were dying at the, at the edict of Pharaoh. And so we can't miss this subtle nuance that the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, 
She hid him three months. It's quite possible, this is speculation, but it's quite possible that they were hoping for a daughter. They knew the edict. It's quite possible they were hoping for a daughter just so they didn't have to experience the pain of losing a son. They could have feared the king and killed their son. After all, after all, they already had Miriam and Aaron. But something interesting is said. It's upon seeing Moses that they were reminded that God is God and he is to be obeyed above every man and institution. Stephen says that Moses was beautiful in God's sight. The author of Hebrews says the same thing, that when they saw that he was a fine child, that was what changed the trajectory of all that was going to happen. His parents realized the beauty of Moses. It was faith that reckoned in the heart of his mother that Moses was beautiful. For she saw him as God did. We can't miss this point. She saw him as God did. That's faith. It's reckoning things as God has revealed them. It's not succumbing to the reasons and the the logic of the world. But in that moment, after realizing she gave birth to a son, there were no ultrasounds back then. That's a long nine months not knowing whether or not you're going to keep your baby. But she saw him and her faith led her to the same conclusion that God had already deemed, that he was beautiful. That he was beautiful. Hebrews eleven twenty three. I already alluded to it. By faith, Moses, when he was born was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. They reckoned in their hearts that God was right and they acted in faith rather than in fear. So what does Moses' mother then do? She places him in a basket that she is covered in bitumen and pitch, basically tar, and she sends him into the Nile if you're thinking of the themes that pervade Genesis, then this should be reminiscent. Did not Noah cover the ark in pitch before the flood came? Was not Noah and his family saved through the waters of judgment? And is not Nile a very picture of the waters of judgment? Pharaoh aiming to judge Israel by sending newborn males into those waters. And yet his mother crafts a basket with pitch that he might survive, an ark that he might survive the floodwaters of judgment and death. This act is not one of despair, but faith. She is trusting in the providential care of her son to God and his ability to keep his covenant promises, just like Noah. She is acting in faith, not in fear. We know this because the scriptures tell us this. 
remember, God had already promised his people that he would multiply them. To Abraham, he specifically said that he would multiply his offspring as many as the stars of the sky. That's in Genesis 22. And to Jacob, he said, fear not to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation. So which is it? Will we be made a great nation? Will we, will we take the Lord at his word and trust that he's making us a great nation even in the midst of our enemy? Or will we call it quits, wave the white flag, and say, God, you were wrong. We're being slaughtered day in and day out. His mother entrusted herself and her child into the providential hands of God. She did not succumb to fear, but she rose in faith. And then as the story continues, we see Miriam watching Moses. And she sees that Pharaoh's daughter finds him and takes pity on him. Pharaoh's daughter knew this was a Hebrew baby. The text says so. And she takes pity on him. She knew all too well the edict of her father. It was impossible for her not to. And in fact, his evil tyranny had only grown. Remember, he went from ordering just the midwives to commanding that all Egyptians take part in the infanticide of Hebrew males. So she was without excuse before her father. And yet, in God's providence, Pharaoh's daughter finds the child and saves him from the waters. In fact, she's probably the only one who can stay the wrath of her father. As a daughter, she's probably the only one who could convince him, withhold your rage. The child is mine. It could be no one else, but it was her. It's all providence. It's God orchestrating every single detail. Miriam then comes forth and courageously asks Pharaoh's daughter if she wants a Hebrew nurse. And what happens? Well, this, of course, leads to Moses' own mother being reunited with her son for at least a time. Consider how miraculous this is. Don't, look, don't overlook this detail. Is this not a wonderful demonstration of what the call to follow Christ actually looks like? Christ calls us to trust him rather than ourselves, to believe his word as reality rather than the trials that press upon us on every side. Christ calls us to deny ourselves completely, even the things that are good and right, in order to follow him wholly. And then what does Christ promise to do in return? He promises to care for us and to give us everything we need. Moses' mother wonderfully demonstrates what it means to deny self and entrust herself to Christ. This should also remind you of Abraham and the call for him to follow Christ. He was asked to give up his only son, 
And by faith, Abraham lays him on the altar and even lifts the knife. But the Lord intervened. And only when Abraham was first willing to lose everything for Christ did he actually receive everything back. Moses' mother was willing to lose her son for Christ, and yet she providentially gains him back again. This is the same God that we worship today who says, trust me. You don't understand what's happening and it all looks like loss to you because it's supposed to. And yet he is providentially ordering the details of your life, your joys, your suffering, your wins and your losses. All of it is kept by him. And are you willing to forsake it all for him that you might gain it back? It's a question we all must ask ourselves. We, we have to reckon with that question. If we are unwilling to lose it all, then we have not gained Christ. Look at this. God's sovereign hand continues to supply for the needs of his people. Despite, despite the foolish threats of men. In verse 10, we see that Pharaoh's daughter receives the child back. And after some, t- after some time, so he's with his mother, says, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Consider the meaning of this name with me. Not only was Moses drawn from the waters himself, but he was the one chosen by God to draw out his people from Egypt, to lead them through the waters of the Red Sea and to redeem Israel as the chosen people of God. Not only this, okay, here's the Here's the holy irony in it all. Not only this, but it's Pharaoh's daughter who names him. The daughter of the man seeking to destroy his life is the unwitting prophetess of Israel's salvation. Names have meanings. You cannot read the Bible and not see that God gives names. He also receives names from his people that describe his care or his action or his in, in the moment. Names always mean something. They meant something for our forefathers in the faith and they meant things to Jesus. Jesus gave names to his disciples because they meant something. And it's Mo, it's, Moses is named by Pharaoh's daughter. You can't make this stuff up. She unwittingly acknowledges the Redeemer of Israel is here. John Owen once wrote, How blind are poor, sinful mortals in all their contrivances against the church of God when they think all things secure and that they shall not fail of their end, that their counsels are laid so deep as not to be blown upon, 
their power so uncontrollable and the way in which they are engaged so effectual that God himself can hardly deliver it out of their hands. Basically saying, how foolish are wicked men who think not even God can change the things that they've designed. But he that sits on high laughs them to scorn and with an almighty facility lays provisions for the deliverance of his church and for the ultimate ruin of the wicked. Pharaoh, in his scheming, in his striving to destroy the people of God, has a member of his own household rescue the very man who will redeem Israel. Please don't lose this. Is God not in control? Is he not orchestrating every detail so that he might be seen as the Almighty? I hope you see it. Every detail has been ordained for the glory of God and the good of his people. Their enslavement in Egypt was no mistake. And the things that afflict you right now are no mistake. We must remember that. Now my, se- my next point, we'll see purpose. In verse 11, we see one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Moses is now 40 years old. We know that from Stephen. And we don't know when Moses learned about his Hebrew identity, but given it was clear, even as an infant, it's quite possible he knew early on. Certainly Pharaoh's household knew. But nevertheless, he knows now. He's 40 years old. He knows now. And he intentionally goes out to see his kindred. Something causes him to go and see. Moses knows at this point that he has purpose as a Hebrew as a recipient of the promises of God, but he has yet to understand his full purpose in Christ. But we know he's beginning to understand it because he's burdened. He's burdened for his people. He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. That, that details, it matters. He's already beginning to see his, the Hebrews as his kinsmen. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. In an instant, Moses understands more than ever his duty as a Hebrew, and he acts decisively on defending his people and lifting, and lifting their burden. I don't think this was rash at all. He looks both ways to make sure no one's watching before he strikes that Egyptian. And again, I'm referencing Stephen a lot because, again, Scripture interprets Scripture. Stephen makes it known that Moses understood himself to be a Savior for his people. 
And so he's, he's already beginning to reckon this in his life. And so he looks both ways to make sure no one can see him. And he kills that Egyptian because he knows it's wrong and he is coming to the defense and aid of his brothers. <clears throat> so he's understanding, again, more than ever, his duty as a Hebrew. And he acts decisively. This was a faith-filled act because it's in this moment that Moses has separated himself from the household of Pharaoh and joins himself to the people of God. There's no turning back. You cannot recover from this, and he knows it. It's in this instance that he entrusts himself to the God of his people rather than to the gods of Egypt. He forsakes everything he knows in the household of Pharaoh so that his people might be redeemed. Hebrews writes, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses walked by faith and not by sight. He believed that the reward of Christ was far more valuable than all of the treasures of Egypt. This, this is faith. This word has been given to us for our instruction, says Paul. Don't, don't be deaf to it. I'm talking about myself too. This is faith. Being willing to forsake every comfort you know because Jesus is more valuable. Anything less than that is fake because you have valued things greater than the God of the universe. You have valued yourself because you want those things and you've become your own God. But Moses, by faith, understood that the reproach of Christ was far more valuable than any comfort of Egypt. This is faith in Christ and his word. In trusting Christ, Moses discovered his true purpose. It is only when we lay down our lives for the purposes of Christ that we discover our purpose in him. And as I said, this can only happen when we treasure Christ above all else. This means we esteem him greater than self, greater than family, greater than our possessions, greater than our circumstances. Whatever the thing may be, to lay it all down means to lay it all down. And only then will we know what our life is for. Only then. Many, 
may we walk in that same faith. It's what he wants for us, church. That we esteem not the world, but Christ and his kingdom. And when we do that, when we walk in the fear and trembling of the Lord, his promise is to actually give us the world. Do you know that? All things will be ours, and all things are already ours in Christ. We have nothing to lose, but it requires us with a type of reckless abandonment that says, I'll lay it all down. It's my yes is always on the table, Lord. I'll do whatever it is you ask me. I will obey your word. I will learn your word so that then I can obey it. Whatever it is, I'll do it. I will be proven wrong over and over and over again because you are worthy and you are God and I'm not. That's faith. And when you walk like that, you see the providential care of a father for his children that orchestrates every detail for your good and his glory. And then, of course, when you know your purpose in Christ, you then can walk in the peace of knowing him and having your eyes set upon him. My third point, peace. Moses flees Egypt by faith. Verse 13, Moses sees his kinsmen fighting and he attempts to intervene. But rather than being, rather being accepted and submitted to, he's rejected by the Hebrew men. And not only that, they reveal that they know what he's done. And it says he is, Moses was afraid. Now, later in scripture, we know that Moses was not afraid of Pharaoh. You have to pay attention to the text. Why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known, period. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. Moses was not afraid of Pharaoh. But something, something different is happening. And he's understandably afraid. But he's afraid that the thing has been known. But if it's not Pharaoh he's afraid of, why does it matter? Well, Stephen tells us that Moses supposed that he would be understood by his brothers. But instead, they rejected him. So imagine this. You have acted in faith by defending your burdened and helpless kinsmen only to be misunderstood and refused by them. Again, Stephen reveals that Moses understood himself to be a savior for his people. Perhaps, perhaps he was beginning to put together the pieces of God's providence only now to be scorned by the very people he came to save. Does this sound familiar? It should. Unbeknownst to him, 
Moses was a foreshadow of the better redeemer to come who also would be rejected and scorned by his Hebrew brothers. And so look at all these details unfolding. You have things pointing to Genesis, reminding us that God has been orchestrating it all the while from the very beginning. And you have the details in the present of Moses' salvation through the waters by the very hand of Pharaoh's household And you have the giving of his name, which means something. It literally means to draw out. Because one day he would draw out his people from the clutches of Egypt. The psalmist actually writes, you led them by the hand of Moses. Moses was a real redeemer. The scriptures do not shy away from the fact that God saved his people through Moses. He was a redeemer. He was a Messiah. He was not the Messiah, but he was one for his people. And so his name, to draw out, it means something. And it all comes from God. And now you see him acting to save his brothers. And yet they reject him and they scorn him. And it's because of that he's rightly afraid. He thought he would be understood and accepted. Instead, he was rejected and scorned. And Moses, I think, does know that Pharaoh is now going to seek his life. But we know, we know he's not afraid of Pharaoh, but he's wise. And so he flees. And he flees to Midian. And where does he stop? At a well. Okay, well, there should be some more thematic bells ringing right now. Throughout Genesis, wells are very important. Covenants are struck at wells. God speaks to his people at wells, to the patriarchs. And wives are met at wells. And as we'll see, a wife does come from this encounter at the well. But before that, Hebrews eleven twenty seven says, By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He endured as seeing him who is invisible. I kept thinking of this particular verse from Isaiah all the while reading this narrative in Moses' flight to Midian. Isaiah 26.3 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Moses kept his eyes on the one who was invisible. His mind was stayed upon Christ. And Christ held him in perfect peace. He fled not in fear, but in faith. That somewhat assails our sensibilities. At least I I think it does mine. Maybe it's the, uh, 
military, you know, maybe it's the uh, gunfighting movies I watch. I don't know, or, or anything else. But you don't, you don't back down. You pick up your belt and you go punch the baddie in the face. But that's not quite what needs to happen here. And Moses is much wiser than me. And he understands that God has purpose even in this. And that the faith-filled thing to do is to wait. But not wait in Egypt, of course, because that would be a death sentence. But to go and wait. And he goes to the land of Midian. And again, he sits at a well. Sits at a well. While there, he rescues seven daughters from the pr- of the priest of Midian from the harassment of shepherds. I imagine shepherds to be like the dirtiest of blue-collar people you could imagine in society. I mean, they're rolling around with sheep all day, and they're so fixed on caring for the sheep, they probably have not many cares for people they don't know. And so these women are harassed, and Moses, I'm speculating, but Moses probably already feeling the burden to help and the burden to be a redeemer for his people sees these women in need and he steps in and he does the right thing and he shoes off the shepherds. And so, as the story reveals, this leads to them returning home quicker, more quickly than normal. And their father says, How did you, why did you return so quickly? And they tell them of Moses. So Moses eventually joins the household as the reward of his help. And he is given Zipporah as a wife. And so he met his wife at the well. He met his wife at the well. This isn't just a cute detail either. But it's important because all of the forefathers, the patriarchs of Israel, had, particular, had very specific instances with God and with people, but also with their wives at wells. And so this is this providential way of showing us that Moses is to be a patriarch. Not in the sense of bloodline, but in the sense of faith in leading Israel. He is to be the one who takes on the mantle as the next father of Israel, so to speak. And so, in God's miraculous timely providential care he's working every single detail according to the counsel of his will everything everything and of course they have a son this is Moses' first son they go on to have another and he calls his name Gershom for he said I have been a sojourner in a foreign land remember names matter and this is even a declaration by Moses saying, I don't belong in Midian. Perhaps he doesn't quite, he's not quite ready to go back to Egypt. We know later in Exodus, he's, he's scared. He doesn't want to be the mouthpiece of God in front of Pharaoh. But he knows he's a, he's a foreigner and a sojourner. And so he names his son accordingly as a perpetual reminder to him that I don't belong in Midian. I don't belong in Midian. And so at every step of the way, Moses has entrusted himself to Christ. And, it, and this, is, 
the only proper response to providence. We don't look at it from a distance and say, well, God's going to do what he's going to do anyway, so I'm just going to hang along for the ride. Or we have this view of some distant deity who's orchestrating things to the point where it doesn't matter what we do. This is, that's not the God of the Bible. He requires that we respond in faith because we see him through his providential care. We acknowledge that he is God and we are not so that every step of the way we have to make the choice whether we will walk in faith according to what has been revealed in his word or will we walk according to the counsel of the flesh. At every step of the way, there is no autopilot in the Christian life. God is orchestrating all things, all things for our good and his glory so long as we commit our way to him. You will be left in ruins should you abandon him. But if you commit your way to him, then he will demonstrate his power so wonderfully and so mercifully that you will worship and you will see his mighty hand at work, just like Moses saw, just like Moses' mother saw, just like all of the patriarchs in the faith got to witness firsthand as they entrusted themselves to a good God. And so as we close, I just want to remind us of three things. In Christ, God has providentially ordered every detail of your life. He has determined all your days and the boundaries of your dwelling. And all of this is for His glory, which is your good. You can't say that enough. You have to preach that to yourself. We forget so easily. And we think somehow He's being punitive towards us, even though we belong to Him in Christ. But we also have to have the perspective that his glory surpasses our happiness. He is far more concerned with your holiness than your happiness. Nowhere in scriptures it says, be happy as I am happy. But it does say, be holy as I am holy. Our response to this great God must be faithfulness at every step of the way. We must endure in following Christ no matter the cost. What seems like the ultimate death is an opportunity to entrust yourself to our faithful creator. We must learn from Moses to consider the reproach of Christ far more valuable than the passions and pleasures of the flesh. The treasures of evil Egypt are nothing in comparison to the glory of belonging to Christ and his kingdom. Do you believe this? It's easy to think of the past and say, well, of course, Egypt was terrible. It's easy for Moses to say no to that. I don't think it was. I don't think it was. So we have to ask the question ourselves. Do you value Christ and his righteousness over everything else? Do you? Are you willing to be slandered by your neighbors, by your family, by your former friends because you value Jesus 
more than you value their opinion. You value his righteousness more than the narrative of culture. You have to make the choice. And I would urge you to do it now. We have to ask ourselves the question and we have to answer honestly. And lastly, we must also, like Moses, keep our mind stayed on Christ that he might keep us in perfect peace despite terror, calamity, and the unknown. We must choose to trust the Lord and to fear him rather than man. Let's pray. We are yours, Heavenly Father, in Christ the Son. And I pray now that we would every single day choose to entrust ourselves to our Creator who is faithful. That we would give ourselves over to the hands of providence. That we would choose to walk by faith rather than sight. Would you protect us from apathy and lethargy Would you protect us from being lulled to sleep by the the hymns of the world, by the lullabies of the enemy? But rather, would we be alert, sober-minded, always seeking to walk in obedience to your commands? We know that we can only do this by faith in Christ, who is our righteousness. So please, Lord, grow us in this. Teach us to trust in you rather than self. Lord, I I pray that you would purge us. That's a hard prayer and perhaps some have never even prayed it. But we value you, Jesus, and your kingdom and your righteousness more than we value our own flesh, our own comforts. So please purge us that we might be holy as you are holy. We want to be a city, on a, uh, a city on a hill, shining the light of heaven for all to see. Please, would you do it? Would you move in our midst? I pray this all according to the power and the promises that are ours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.